We're going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and so I would ask you to turn to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Let me encourage all the folk who will be out at the meeting tonight to bring as many unconverted folk as you possibly can. I want to be as simple as I can in the, the presentation of the gospel tonight on the subject of conversion. So please do make an effort, if you can, to bring unconverted folk under the sound of God's word. But we're looking this morning at Matthew chapter 5. And the last section, remember there have been several sections where the Lord Jesus was dealing with the Old Testament law and speaking of how he has come to be the fulfillment of it. And those sections began in verse 21. And now we come to the last of those five, and we're looking at the subject of loving your enemies. Verse 43. The Lord says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. But ye therefore be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Let us pray together. Our Father, as we come to thy eternal word, we pray now that thou wilt help us to understand. We pray that you will help us to implement these truths in our lives. They are so difficult. Therefore, we ask for thy divine enablement and power and unction of thy Holy Spirit to me as I preach you the word that you'll fill me and anoint me to preach it. And for those who are listening, that you will give them that meekness by your Spirit to receive the engrafted word of truth. So help us now, we pray. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Love your enemies. I'm sure you would admit that the Irish race are not the most forgiving when it comes to their enemies. I read an Irish prayer this week that went like this, May those that love us, love us, and those that don't love us, may God turn their hearts. And if he doesn't turn their hearts, may he turn their ankles so we'll know them by their limping. And that is often the sentiment of folk from Ulster and indeed Ireland. And in fact, any folk that can call themselves sinners and all are sinners, that is the natural reaction of humanity to those whom we class as our enemies. But nevertheless, still today in our godless and unbiblical generation that hardly knows who Noah is or Moses is, some even do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet most people know that one of the distinguishing factors of the Christian faith is that the Christian is to love their enemy. It is seen perhaps as the primary, most distinguishing virtue of the Christian faith. It was said of Archbishop Cranmer, if you would be sure to have Cranmer do you a good turn, you must do him an ill one. For though he loved to do good to all, especially he loved to do good 
to those who did him evil. And he watched for opportunities to do good to those who were doing evil to him on a regular basis. And when we look at saints of old like Archbishop Cranmer, and we see this Christian virtue within them, we have to ask ourselves in the light of the words of the Lord today, how do we fare? How do we measure up when it comes to loving our enemy? Now we have seen as we have gone through the Lord Jesus commentating on the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, we have seen how in each case he never ever opposed what the law taught. But what he did oppose was the unauthorized additions of the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, how they inadequately interpreted the Word of God, how they took the Word of God and twisted it to mean what they wanted in their own interpretation. Indeed, the Lord calls it the tradition of the elders, how they diluted and prefixed and put parts onto the law in order to fit their own trends and their own life. But what the Lord Jesus comes is, he, he comes to the law, and as he says of himself, I am come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. So as the Lord has been speaking, and as we have been looking at it in these weeks, as he speaks on the Old Testament scriptures, his primary goal is not destruction. His goal is development. He wants to bring the Old Testament scriptures to the goal and the development that God intended it in the first place. And so he comes to the law of love. I hope you can remember the occasion when the Jewish lawyer came to the Lord Jesus and asked him what was the greatest of all the commandments. And the Lord replied these words, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So the Lord Jesus is relaying down the foundation of what the true commandments of the law, and indeed the spirit of the whole of the Ten Commandments is. The first five commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And the last five commandments are related to our brothers and sisters in humanity. And that again, the second, is like unto it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And on these two hang all of the law and the prophets. But again we come to an instance of how men edited the word of God. How men changed the law of God to suit their own circumstances and to suit their own sinful habits and tendencies. So I want to outline for you two things whereby men edited God's word and specifically edited the law of God with regards to the law of love. I don't know whether your computer literate, but you will know on your computer, if you can use your computer, that there is a cutting and pasting mechanism. In other words, if you have a bit of text on your screen, you can take out a bit that you don't want, you can put it somewhere else. You can take it out and totally delete it. In fact, you can add a bit in from another document, and it's called cutting and pasting, like you would cut the wallpaper and paste it onto the wall. The Pharisees and the scribes in the Lord Jesus' day had that mentality toward the Word of God. They were cutting bits out that they didn't like. They were putting bits in that made it easier for them to follow the law of God. 
And as we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount in recent weeks, we have seen these Jewish perversions of God's law. The rabbi's teaching regards to love in verse 43 is said to be this. Jesus says, You've heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Love thy neighbor, they said, and hate thine enemy. Now the law of God did not say that. It was quite different in Leviticus 19 and verse 18. We read these words, Love thy neighbor as thyself. But there it stops. It doesn't say anything about hating your enemy. And so the Pharisees, the Jews, had perverted the law of God once more. They made it different in three ways. First of all, in qualification. They didn't just leave it as love thy neighbor, but they defined for you who your neighbor was. In other words, your neighbor is somebody of the same color as you, the same religion as you, the same creed as you. He has to be a Jewish neighbor. Love your Jewish neighbor, but don't love anybody else. Qualification. And then there was omission. They changed the law of God by omitting some of the truth within it. If you look at verse 43, it says, You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. What part of the law did they leave out? Love thy neighbor as thyself. They omitted it. And that's the extent of the, the law of love. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. They qualified it. They omitted it. And they added to it. There's addition. Because they said, And hate thine enemy and the law of God did not do that in fact the law of God if we had time we could look at it in Exodus 23 it actually told you how to behave toward your enemy to behave toward them in benevolence in other words if your enemy's ox or ass was stolen or lost and you found it you had to be kind to him you had to return it to them and the law of God is full of these benevolent instances toward your neighbor and toward your enemy now I can understand how perhaps the Jews had misinterpreted the law of God. For if you remember, Joshua, going into the promised land, Canaan, was told to exterminate all their enemies. Men, women, boys and girls were to be totally wiped out so that they could have the land. And perhaps as they looked at that, they thought, well, God wants us to hate our enemies. God wants us to destroy our enemies. Perhaps as they looked at the Psalms, and if you've read the Psalms, you will know that there are times when the psalmist calls down judgment upon his enemies, calls the wrath of God down upon the enemies of Israel and his personal enemies as the king or a leader in the nation. But what we have to remember in those two instances is this. First of all, God commanded Israel to go into the promised land. God commanded them to clear out the land of all their enemies for one reason, purely because of the evil of those nations. The Canaanites were bringing abominations into the sight of God, the gods that they were worshipping, the evil sinful practices that they were delving into. And if you like, this was the holy war that we find in Scripture, where God told his people to go in and to clear the land so that they would not be contaminated with the sins of the Canaanites. But you must remember this. God gave warrant for that. Then as we come to the psalmist, we must also remember that the psalmist never is talking about his personal enemies, his personal animosity, his personal hate. But he is speaking as, as a representative of the nation, perhaps as a king, perhaps as a general. 
or even a representative of God. He's standing in the place of God, singing praises to God in a psalm, or perhaps as a penitential prayer to God for the nation against the enemy. This is what I want you to know, because we've been looking at this week after week. If we applied this to today and to our nation, the nation would, would be in total chaos. There would be crime everywhere, because we would say, well, well, you're to love your enemy, you're not to lock them up, you're not to put them in jail, you're not to take them to the court. If we did it on an international scale, we would be saying, well, let Osama bin Laden get on with it. Let them do what they like around the world. Maybe that seems that in our own present situation, that may be what is going on. But these are not principles to be applied to nations. These are not principles to be applied to, to individual unbelievers. These are the principles of the kingdom of God. These are the principles of believers. What we are talking about today are your personal enemy, your personal animosities, your personal hatred. You can see how the Jews perverted the word of God for their own ends. And you might tut tut and shake the finger at them and shake your head at them for touching and tampering with the word of God. But it grieves me today to bring to you that Christians do exactly the same. There may be Jewish perversions that edit the word of God and the laws of God, but there are also Christian diversions that take away from the truth of what God has said. We've already said that this verse, perhaps more than anything, in the eyes of people in the world, defines the true attitude and nature of the Christian ethic, what the Christian ought to be in the eyes of men and women. But although perhaps it's the pinnacle of all Christian witness and what it should be, you would admit with me as a believer here today that it's the hardest perhaps of all the commands that God gives to us in his word. And it's the hardest trait for anybody to find within a Christian believer. And I believe for that reason, Christian theologies, Christian ideology, ideologies, Christian doctrines and beliefs have been evolved in order to get people out of the awkward corner of forgiving and loving your enemy. Let me give you a few of them. Matthew's gospel is for the Jew, so this command is not for me, it is for the Jew. Now Matthew's gospel is for the Jew, and these were spoken to Jews, but my friend, this is the word of God. And we haven't time to go into all the details of why we can take this as the scripture to ourselves. Others say, oh, well, it's for the millennial reign of Christ. And it is for the millennial reign of Christ in the sense that it will all be consummated and fulfilled when people actually live like this on the earth. But it still can be applied to the believer and the life of God in our lives today. And whether you say it's only for the Jew or whether you say it's for the millennial reign of Christ, do you not see what the ploy is behind all of that? That's not for me. I'm looking for a way to get around how I, I can stop having to love my enemy. Some commentators that I was reading this week went into the detail of the Greek words for love. And there are four Greek words for love and they all mean different things. And the Greek word for love here isn't family love. It isn't love that you have for a wife or a son, or a daughter, or a mother, or a father. It isn't the love that you have for a friend that you have a great deal of things in common with. 
it's none of those things. And so some people have said, well, this is a love that isn't an affection of the heart, but it is a love of the mind and the will. When you decide to maybe love a person that you don't really like, you might not like them, but God commands you to love them. I don't know how men and women see this within the word of God. The idea of God putting in a believer a forced love, a love of the will and not a love of the heart, surely that is the opposite of all the heart teaching within the Sermon on the Mount. That it is not the outward appearance, it is the heart. God is looking for what's in your heart. Not that you say or you do something towards someone to show them that you love them, but deep down you can't stand them, you can't be around them. The word for love here is a different word. It is the love agape. And agape is the greatest love of all because agape is the love of God. And you can't tell me that God doesn't love us from our heart, that God just loves us with our will and he doesn't really like it. Putting all that aside, even forgetting about all of that, and that proves it for itself, the Lord Jesus said that you have heard it said, love your neighbor as yourself. That is the extent of this love. It's a great love. I, I believe it's the greatest love of all because it's God's love. Agape. The love that God has shown toward us. Seneca said this, Live for thy neighbor if thou wouldest live for God. He is right. Live for your neighbor if you would live for God. We have a personal salvation today in evangelicalism. We have a personal redemption, a personal forgiveness. But we have forgotten this, that if you are to live for God, if you are to be a disciple for the Lord Jesus Christ, you are commanded to love your neighbor as yourself and love them with God's love. It's hard, but isn't it? Someone said it is no chore for me to love the whole world. My only real problem is my neighbor next door the truth of them. The problem perhaps that we have in a materialistic world is, as someone else said, we too often love things and use people when we should be using things and loving people. And so you see how the Jews, how Christian theologians will do somersaults around the, the word of God to get out of what it is to be commanded as a believer to love thy neighbor as thyself. It's plain as day, isn't it? And so what is it to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, I want to give it to you simply as this. It is omitting God's life. To love your neighbor as yourself is to admit God's life in your personality and in your life. Verse 44 says that. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Love your enemies. Now, who are your enemies? The Lord defines it in verse 44. Them that hate you. Those who wish you evil who detest you have a real loathing of you who are often aroused even when you do good things for them they seem to just emit hate toward you continually the lord says them which despitefully use you those who threaten you those who insult you them which persecute you 
those who speak evil against you with their words, or perhaps even further than that, act against you in physical violence. The Lord Jesus says, there's a definition of your enemies. You go and love them. Now, that's not natural. Don't tell me that's natural. For we live in a world that says, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You punch my nose, I'll punch yours. We live in a world and the philosophy is give as good as you get. But the Lord is coming here and he's saying that that's not allowed for the New York. That's not allowed for the kingdom of God. That's not allowed for my children. My children have a greater rule, a higher rule. And it's this. Those who are provocative towards you, you have to remain unprovoked. Those who hate you, you must love them. The treatment to everyone who reviles you, persecutes you, say all manner of things against you, despitefully uses you. Your reply always, you don't need to think about it, it's just love. Now can you imagine the reaction of the disciples when the Lord Jesus is teaching them? Can you imagine their faces? Perhaps even the, the listeners around in the outer crowd as they heard this, absolutely as far as they were concerned, impossible teaching. Perhaps I imagine, and it's only my imagination, that the Lord was even jeered as he said these words. Love them? How can you love your enemy? And maybe that's what is coming from your heart as you listen to the word of God today. You're saying from your heart, how is that possible? Well, there is natural love, and you don't have to work at that. That's the love that you have for the members of your family, for the family circle. And that love is probably drawn from your heart because you're flesh and blood. If you're not flesh and blood, it, it's a love that is drawn out because of an affinity of interests or because you're similar in character to this other person or in temperament. And it's not hard to love someone that you're attracted to in that way. It's a natural affection. And there's a Greek word for that. But that's not the word here. The word here is God's love. And that means a supernatural love. A love that supersedes all other loves. It is a, a love that is utterly regardless of condition or of position. It's a love that loves you. And is a genuine love from the heart and from the will. But it loves you not because of anything in you. But just because it loves you. Tremendous illustration of this is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. We don't have time to look at it all. The Good Samaritan. And I don't need to recap you with the story of the Good Samaritan. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, know it. But that Good Samaritan, what happened? His heart went out in love. And it went out practically for that man lying in blood. And the love that he had toward him was an unknown love. In other words... The Samaritan had never seen this man in his life before. So it wasn't a natural affinity. It wasn't a bond of flesh. It was a, a love that went out to something that was unattractive. Can you imagine the ugly sight of that man lying, bruised and bleeding, a battered form? Yet this love went towards something that was unattractive. It was an unprofitable love. The Samaritan was getting nothing out of it. In fact, if anything, he was losing. It was costing him. For he had to put the man up in the inn, you remember. And he had to pay for all his hospitality and all his care. It was an unfriendly love. 
The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And for that Samaritan to do what he did toward the Jew was going across political, social, religious and cultural barriers just to do that. Now that's the love that is talked about when God says to you and to me, love thy neighbor as thyself. Imagine that. A person you don't know. A person that's unattractive. You get nothing out of it. It's unprofitable. Maybe the person's unfriendly, but you do it. That snotty-nosed little boy in Sunday school who's never invited to tea, who's never made a fuss over, who's never been taken to the zoo and who smells of urine. It's to love him. That's that love. You know what it is? It's God's love. God's love. When we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. And even when His perfect justice had to punish, His perfect love remained. And what we are talking about here is the love of Jesus. We are to love others with the love of Christ. The perfect friend is one who knows the worst about you and loves you just the same. There's only one who loves like that and Jesus is His name, His wonderful, wonderful name. And that's in the closing moments. Pin this love down. Verse 45a says, You're to love like this, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Now really what that is saying is, is there a family likeness? Ask yourself that today. Is there a family likeness? Am I like God? Am I loving with God's love? Am I resembling Him in the love that I have for others? Just as your father, your mother, your daughter, your son has a family resemblance to you, God is saying, this is the resemblance in my children because they love like I love. It's a spiritual resemblance. Augustine said, good for good, evil for evil, that is natural. Evil for good, that is devilish. Good for evil, that is divine. That's divine. It is the characteristic of God in your life. It's the family characteristic and resemblance. It's what John meant when he says, we love him. Now that doesn't literally mean we love him as in we love God because he first loved us. That's a mistranslation. It means this, we love others. Because he loved us. In other words, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. You see it? The love of God in our lives is to cause us to ferment within our soul to such an extent of appreciation that we go out to a world and we love them as Christ loved them. The big question is, can this be done? Well, don't answer that question with whether it is being done or not, for frankly, it's not being done. But the question is, can it be done? And the answer is yes. But there's only one type of man or woman who can do it. 
There are three men in the scriptures. One is called the natural man. One is called the carnal man. And one is called the spiritual man. And if you're to love like God loves, you're to be the spiritual man. The natural man is the unregenerate, the unsaved, the unconverted. And it's foolish to tell him to love his enemies. For he receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. They're unsaved. There's no point in telling unsaved people to love their enemy. But the second is the carnal man. And that is a person who is a Christian, but he's like a baby who's underdeveloped. He's never grown up. And there's no use telling him to love his enemies because he won't do it. He doesn't want to do it. If even in your prayers you include forgiveness for your enemies, maybe on the outside he says yes, but inwardly he's recoiling at the fact that you should ever say such a thing. And my friend, if you're unsaved, if you're a carnal Christian, you cannot love your enemies. What you must be is a spiritual man. That is a man who is a Christian and who lives as a Christian, who lives on the high level of the spiritual plane, which is the normal Christian life. And God's word says, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. We all have the spirit. We all have the spirit. If we are saved, That's not the question regarding the spiritual man. The question is this. How much of you does the spirit have? If he has all of you, you are the spiritual man. How is the family likeness today? Love like that detects your parentage. In verse 45 it says, love like that displays God's impartiality. God lets the rain drop on the righteous and the unrighteous. He lets the sun shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's the type of love we are to have. The love of God. That type of love makes a man like God. Displays God's impartiality. And thirdly, verse 46 and 47, it demonstrates a good testimony. The Lord says, so what if you love your brother? So what if you love your neighbor? So what if you love someone you're attracted to? Even the publicans do that. And the publicans were the lowest of the low in Jewish society. The Lord Jesus says, you're doing as much as the worst sinner imaginable. That's not what we're called to do. What does he say? You're called to do more than others. More than others. How do we measure up to that? How many people have been turned off Christianity who haven't got saved or are not getting saved at this moment because of something that a believer has done because they have not lived more than others? Well, we're often criticized and sometimes we resent the criticism of unbelievers. But here's the big question. Is it true? Is it true? You know, it's amazing to me in all of this sermon... We are astounded at what God is asking us through the Lord Jesus to do. But the sad thing is this. How far short do we feel of it all? Verse 48 says, This love derives from Christian maturity. He says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which in heaven is perfect. Now that's not perfect in wisdom, perfect in power, perfect in holiness. It's in the context of this perfect in love. 
You're to be perfect in love as God is perfect in love. It doesn't mean sinlessness, perfect morally or spiritually. What it means is two perfections, I believe. Perfect in capacity. If I had a glass of water here and I was standing beside Loch Ness, that glass of water is filled to capacity just as Loch Ness is. They're not filled with the same amount of water and you cannot be filled with the same amount of love as God is filled at this moment, but you can be filled to capacity. You get it? All your being filled in fullness is the love of God shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost. Are you filled with the Spirit? And if you are filled with the Spirit, you will be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's perfection of capacity. But secondly, it's perfection of maturity. The word perfection here means teleos. And you know what it is? If you had a half-grown lad here and a tall lad fully grown, the tall lad is teleos. Fully developed, fully mature. If you had a student that's just learning and a professor who's an expert, teleos is the professor. In other words, God is saying, I want you to have a grasp of love. I want you to have a perfection in the function that I have given to you. It's the idea of the screw and the screwdriver. When the screwdriver fits the screw, that is teleos. In other words, when it's filling the function it was created for. What were you and I created for? God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. We were created to be like God. Be perfect. Oh, it's impossible, isn't it? It's impossible unless you have died. It's not good doing. It's not getting the Sermon on the Mount open and sitting over it saying, I must, I must, I must try and do this. I have to do my best. I have to live like that. That is not what God is asking you to do. God is asking you to die. He's not looking for good doing. He's looking for God-likeness. He doesn't want you to exhibit good human characteristics, but divine characteristics. And the miracle of it all is this. There's not one person in this building this morning who can't do it. For God does it. Our Father, we pray this morning that our lives will exhibit the divine nature of God. God is love. And we pray that we would love one another Love our neighbors as ourselves, but love our enemies and love all. For we believe God loves all. And we pray, our Father, that thou wilt make us perfect as thou art perfect. For Christ's sake. Amen.